way I talk about it is there's a series of motivational tools that get you into the game. There are a series of learning tools that keep you in the game. There are a series of creativity, creative problem-solving tools that help you steer. And then there's a, a series of flow skills that allow you to amplify everything beyond all reasonable expectations. And when you're talking about cognitive peak performance, that's essentially what you're talking about. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again, breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey there, Rian Doris here with the Flow Research Collective, and welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. Now, in this episode, I'm going to be leaving the stage to Peter Diamandis to interview Stephen. Peter Diamandis is the partner of Stephen in three books that you've probably heard of, Bold, Abundance, and the more recent one, The Future is Faster Than You Think. Now, Peter Diamandis is the founder and executive chairman of the XPRIZE Foundation, which leads the world in designing and operating large-scale incentive competitions. He's also the executive founder of Singularity University, a graduate-level Silicon Valley institution that counsels the world's leaders on exponentially growing technologies. Peter's obviously also a three-time best-selling author with Stephen. He's a public speaker and one of the world's leading thought leaders on exponential technology right up there with Ray Kurzweil and others. You're going to love this conversation. They talk about peak performance. They talk about what big trends you need to be aware of in the future as an aspiring entrepreneur or leader and how to harness the change that we're going to be encountering as these trends build momentum. So you're in for a treat. Stephen and Peter have a great relationship. I've been fortunate enough to spend quite a bit of time with them both together in person, and they just have a great dynamic and great banter. So you're in for a treat. Now, before we kick things off, though, I just want to mention Zero to Dangerous. So Zero to Dangerous is our peak performance training here at the Flow Research Collective. It is a science-backed training for entrepreneurs, for leaders who are struggling with self-sabotage, uncertainty, distraction, and the other issues that crop up in 21st century life and block us from doing the things we know we're capable of doing. Now, in Zero to Dangerous, you will work with our PhD-level peak performance coaches, and they'll help you implement the flow practices and protocols required to make flow state not just this sporadic, random thing that sometimes shows up, but rather something that's systematic, something that's reliable, so you can drive yourself into that zone of peak performance with consistency and work towards spending your entire workday in that state so that you can accelerate towards your big, bold, professional goals faster than ever. Now, to apply for Zero to Dangerous, you just need to go to getmoreflow.com. That's getmoreflow.com, G-E-T-M-O-R-E, flow.com. 
You can pop an application through there. It takes about a minute. And we'll jump on a quick call to see if it's a good fit given where you're at right now. So that's getmoreflow.com to apply for Zero to Dangerous or find the link in the show notes and you can just click. There's a clickable link there and you can go directly. Alrighty, now let's jump into the episode with Peter and Stephen. Welcome uh, with an incredible writer, visionary friend, a co-author, I'm very honored to say with me with three books, though he's been writing a lot more than he has been just with me. Stephen Kotler. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Peter. It's good to be good with to see you, brother. Stephen and I know each other very, very well. And uh, besides talking about his newest book, The Art of the Impossible, we're going to talk about a lot of other things. I don't know yet what they're going to be, but they'll be deeply embarrassing and deeply meaningful. I'm clear about that. Is that okay with you, Stephen? Clear on the embarrassing part. <laughs> So we're going to talk about your latest book, Art of Impossible, which is a killer name. Uh, and so we don't lose people when I start to really you know, drill into you. Give me the two-sentence summary of Art of Impossible that's going to rope everybody in to hear the details of it. The, the Art of Impossible is um, its peak performance primer. It is a how-to guide to kind of maximizing human cognitive performance. It's based on 30 years of my research into flow, into cognitive peak performance. It's everything I've ever learned, systemized, sequenced, and actually put into a how-to. I've never written a how-to before. I've taken 30 years of research into the neurobiology of human peak performance, turned it into a practical playbook that absolutely anyone can use to level up their game, but it's been specifically designed, I think this is appropriate for this community, to help people go after high hard goals. So basically, if you're operating at your peak possible performance, if you're as smart as you could be, if you're doing everything you could do perfectly, then you don't need to watch this. You don't but need this book, yeah. Absolutely. If you've got some if you've got some performance gains that are possible, um, then listen up. So what kind of performance gains are we talking about? Cognitive? Yeah, so I am focused here on the cognitive high-performance suite. So one thing that's worth saying up front, when we say peak human performance, it's nothing more, nothing less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. And it turns out that biology is a limited set of tools. The way I talk about it is there's a series of motivational tools that get you into the game. There are a series of learning tools that keep you in the game. There are a series of creativity, creative problem-solving tools that help you steer. And then there's a, a series of flow skills that allow you to amplify everything beyond all reasonable expectations. And when you're talking about cognitive peak performance, that's essentially what you're talking about. So, But but I love this. I mean, it's, it's the realization that, I mean, most people have uh, some really false assumptions. They're assuming that they're healthy all the time. Right, that nothing's going on inside them that they should know about, which is bullshit, because eventually you end up in the hospital with a pain on your side, and the doctor says, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you've got this, this, or this. And you could have solved that by, you know, uh, by a whole slow go into that right now. You also assume that you're operating at what is your peak performance, but that's not true. A couple of things that are really not true about that, and I'll give up more atmospheric example, then I'll give a concrete example. You're absolutely correct. 
you know, the book is lessons learned from people such as yourself, people who have gone out and done that which has never been done, what people thought was never going to happen. I looked at right. this in every demand imaginable. And the overwhelming lesson in 30 years of doing this is we are all capable of so much more than we know. Everybody I met along the way is an extraordinary person who's done extraordinary things, but very few of them started out that way. It just pretty much starts out the same, right? And it's a question of what do you do with what you've been given that gets you to extraordinary. And what's weird about this is, and this is true at every level, human potential, human capability is invisible, especially to ourselves. Yeah. And to put a really fine point on it, this is really even funny. Like the research shows you could be a professional athlete. Let's say you're a professional basketball player and I come up to you and say, hey, you ever played lacrosse? No. Do you think you like it? You think you'll be good at it? You literally have, even as a professional athlete who works with their body, the studies show over and over and over again, you don't know what you're going to like or what you're going to be good at until after you try it. And this sort of works at every level. And human potential is an emergent property. It emerges when we push on our skills to the utmost again and again and again. That's how we find out what we're capable of. And very few people push that hard to even, you know, get in the ring to start amazing themselves. But we are all designed to go so much farther than we think we are. So in this book, I'm assuming is something for everyone. Full disclosure, I've not read this yet. It is on my reading list next. I'm getting ready for Abundance 360 and I'm just heads down. But once it's done, I'm excited about reading it because I know you are a a knowledge sommelier when it comes down to cognitive and physical performance. So thank you for that. How many folks did you interview for this book, first off, that you have lessons? Oh, um, well, I mean, it's literally 30 years of research. It's almost everything I've ever done. Thousands, literally. Yeah, I mean, the footnotes are- how many, fo- how many folks do you highlight lessons from here? Lessons from 10 to 15 directly in the book, ranging from, you know, people such as yourself or, or folks like, you know, some of the folks we work with on Bold, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, those, those folks, to athletes like Laird Hamilton, Kristen Ulmer, and pretty much all the great minds in peak performance are in there. Mike Gervais is in there. The late Anders Ericsson, who just passed, is in there. Pretty much the entire suite of the, of the leaders of the field. are. are so, there. all right, you know, impossible is a great word. Yeah, let me talk about what I mean by this. Yeah, what do you mean by impossible? So the book is, I always say the book is lessons learned from people who have going after what I call capital I impossible, that which has never been done. But it is meant to be utilized in my mind by anybody who's going after what I call small I impossible. Small I impossible, I'll give you an example that I give. This is a small I impossible is all that stuff that we believe is impossible for us. So when I was growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, blue collar, steel mill town, 70s, I wanted to be a writer, mm-hmm. right? I didn't know any writers. I didn't know how to become a writer. I didn't have any idea. What, like, it was like I woke up one morning and went, Mom, Dad, tonight I want to be an elf, right? Like that's <laughs> for, for all I knew about how you did this. That's a small eye impossible, meaning there's no clear path from point A where you are to point B where you want to get to. And statistically, there's not great odds of success. Small eye impossible, rising out of poverty overcoming deep trauma, becoming world-class at anything that you do, becoming an entrepreneur, um, a mm-hmm. successful entrepreneur. Um, I always think that the first small lie impossible most of us end up going after is how do you get your first kiss? You're uh-huh. 9, 10, 11, 12, right? You're willing to give your right arm 
for your first kiss kind of thing. And, and you have no idea. And most of us actually do solve that one. Right. But like, that's an example of a small eye impossible. And the tools aren't any different. And the thing I want to say that is most important, everybody I've ever met who accomplished capital eye impossible. I know very few of them who set out to do that. Most people go after small eye impossible after small eye impossible after small eye impossible until capital eye impossible just becomes what's next. It's the next mm -hmm. thing in line, right? You're not, Laird Hamilton once explained this to me in a really cool way. You know, he was considered one of the toughest surfers on the planet. And I met him and he said, you know, Stephen, when people see me, they see me on a 50 foot wave and I'm 33 years old and they think, oh my God, that's impossible. I could never do that. How do you do that? Nothing, doesn't make any sense. It's like, you know what they don't see is me at three years old on a three foot wave or four years old on a five, four foot wave or five years old on a five foot wave. And that what they didn't see is me last week on a 49 and a half foot wave. So they see me on a 50 foot wave and think, oh my God, that's impossible. And I see myself on a 50 foot wave and think, Laird, are you really pushing that hard? I mean, it's what, it's six inches bigger than you went last week. That's sort of what I mean by that one. So I get what you mean by impossible, but. Here's the thing, Peter. One thing I yeah. want to say on this. It doesn't actually matter if you're going after capital I impossible, small I impossible, or you want to have an easier time at work next Monday. You know what I mean? Because peak performance is nothing more than getting your biology to work for you rather than against you. It's a limited set of tools. So whatever, you know what I mean? The same thing that's going to help you improve productivity and performance a little bit at work on Monday is the same set of tools that you're going to use to go after bigger and bigger challenges. Okay. So did you find there's a formula for this? Yeah, Absolutely. Not only is there a formula, there's so everybody, there's a lot of great books on components of this. And we've been reading them for years. There's books on grit, there's books on focus, there's books on flow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's new, what's different. And, and I think the contribution that this book brings is because flow is optimal performance, literally it's defined as optimal performance and it amplifies everything that can be amplified because I've been working on the neurobiology of flow. I got, I had to learn all this stuff about the big picture. And so did everybody on my team and blah, blah, blah. And in looking at the big picture, you start to realize, wow, it's a coherent system. And what has happened over the past five to 10 years is the neuroscience has gotten such that we're starting to see how the system works together. So not only is there a formula, the formula is designed to be used in a specific sequence in a specific way. And you can use other components of it elsewhere, but because this is just how we evolution shaped us and that evolved a certain way millions of years ago, that's still the way it tends to I mean, work. We, most of us are fighting our cognitive demons that hold us back. And I've learned all of this from you. So I give you full credit for all the conversations of our cognitive biases and our limitations. It's the equivalent of the elephant that is tied as a young pup with a string and then it that string holds it back the rest of their life. And we all have those strings that hold us back. So what can you, can you share? Yeah, some let, let me sort of walk you through the thinking here. Please. So I said earlier, motivation gets us into the game. Learning keeps us there. Creativity helps us steer. Motivation is a catch-all term. When researchers talk about motivation, what they're really talking about is extrinsic motivation, right? Money, sex, fame, things that are external to yourself that you want intrinsic internal motivators curiosity passion purpose autonomy right they're talking about goals and grit that's the motivation suite and the science is really clear you have to start if you're interested in going farther faster the system is designed to start with extrinsic motivation 
you have to meet safety and security needs and have a little leftover. This is Daniel Kahneman's research. Mm-hmm. You have to meet safety and security needs and have a little leftover for discretionary spending to get into the game. And this is because there's so much anxiety that comes from how am I going to pay my rent? How am sure. I going to write all that stuff? It's hard to optimize the rest of the system. But once that's lined up, and it, it's amazing because if you look at the data, money is a fantastic motivator. Sex, fame, all these things are fantastic motivators, but only to a given point. And that point is really a lot lower than most people expect. And once you get past that point, you cannot really get increased productivity, increased performance using these external motivators. Then intrinsic, internal motivators become really well important. You see this, by the way, in a lot of the research that came out of Google and how they were trying to motivate employees and a lot of a lot of that work, they discovered these same things, right? Well, it also relates, it sounds like, to the economic correlation with happiness, right? That, That's exactly right. That's exactly what the study was, right? So it's, you, for a single family or for a single household, happiness and money rise in tandem to $75,000 a year. And that this was done about 10 years ago, so adjust, but, and then they split apart, right? And what that tells you is money can buy you happiness, but it's a very low level, right? Yeah. It's a lot lower than most people. And after you're not struggling for your food or for air conditioning or for transportation. And the internet and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, a little leftover, like you can go to dinner once a week. And if you want to go buy a book at the bookstore, you can, right? But this doesn't mean you're buying Ferraris. Um, yeah. Once, that, once that's done, right, curiosity is the next most important motivator. It's the, the foundation of all intrinsic motivators. And if you look at it neurobiologically, when you're talking about curiosity, you're really talking about experiences that generate a little bit of norepinephrine and a little bit of dopamine, because that's what we mean by curiosity. It's those two chemicals playing roles in certain parts of the brain. It's the foundational intrinsic motivator, right? Mm-hmm curiosity, if you can find the intersection of three or four or five curiosities and really play there and have some successes there, that's passion. That's literally the, the biological recipe for passion. I, I love that, Stephen. I love that. I, I talk about capturing people's shower time. What yeah. are they thinking about in the shower? What are they curious about? Or what are they passionate about? And- we give people a re- uh, things which we can give out. So if you go to www.passionrecipe.com, what I'm about to talk about for turning curiosity into passion and passion into purpose, we turned it into an interactive workbook. Um, it's the beginning of the book. Um, and I'd rather you bought the book, but if you don't want to buy the book and you really want to cultivate passion in your life, this is, uh, nice. this is Thank out you. there. Yeah. But the idea is passion and literally neurobiologically passion is literally just a lot of norepinephrine and a lot of dopamine. And let's talk about, let's demystify passion and purpose because it gets so People gussy it up with a lot of mystical, spiritual stuff. And I'm not saying that stuff is untrue. I'm saying from a peak performance standpoint, that's not the big deal. From a peak performance standpoint, the big deal about internal motivators like curiosity or passion or purpose is when it comes to any action you're going to take, anything you're going to do, there's only really two big freaking levers. You have your attention. What am I going to put my attention on? What am I going to ignore? And you have the action, right? You have intention and action. That's it. And yeah. if you apply the same intention, the same action over and over and over again, what do you get? A habit. So now you can perform the action without having to think about it. Those are your levers. We all know that the action, the thing you're going to do, while you can get better at it over time, that's a slow growth learning process. 
your big lever is what can you do with focus. The brain is 25% of your energy and 2% of your body mass. It's a huge energy hog. So let's, let's say that again, 25% of your energy and that's at, by the way, consumed rest, by your brain. At rest. At this rest. Isn't even, you're not even working. 25% of your energy at rest when you're in daydreaming mode, 2% of your mass. So wow. calorically, it's huge, right? And when you start really working high, hard problems, thinking about how to solve it, you're burning a ton of energy. Why does curiosity matter? Why does passion matter? You get focused for free. When we're curious about stuff, you don't actually have to do work to pay attention. Happens to make when you're passionate. Think about falling in love. How much attention do you pay to the person you're falling in love with? In fact, you can't stop paying them attention. You're not working at it. It's automatic. When you get your biology working for you rather than against you, you go farther, faster with much less effort. Mm. You spoke about it earlier. The neurochemistry there is what? Neurochemistry of both curiosity and passion, it's both a little bit of dopamine and a little bit of norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is essentially, it's anxiety and excitement. It's the same spectrum, it's the same chemical, and depending on how much is in your system. So when you can always tell norepinephrine is in your system because you're a little twitchy and you're excited and you're hypervigilant when your folk can't stop thinking about something, that's norepinephrine. Dopamine is a reward chemical, right? It's what we get from social media that's so addictive, but it makes us excited, makes us happy, wants us, makes us want to make meaning out of situations. So dopamine shows up with curiosity because it's our desire to link cause with effect because that's mm -hmm. so foundational with survival. So a little bit of these chemicals, you're getting focused for free. Once you can have, figure out where multiple curiosities intersect, you've got passion, you take your passion and attach it to a problem that is greater than yourself that you want to see in the world, that's how you create purpose. And as I said, if you go to thepassionrecipe.com, there's a really easy plan for this. And purpose, again, this is one of these things that, you know, we talked about some of the advantages of purpose a lot in bold. It attracts other people to your problem. Yeah, we talked right? about massively, massively yeah. transformative purpose, right? And I'm going to get to MTPs in half a second because it's the next step. Basically, yeah. once you have your purpose, what does the system want? Autonomy it wants the freedom to pursue that purpose. And we actually now have data on how much autonomy you actually need to get this motivator going for you, to actually start getting the energy from autonomy. And once you have autonomy, you get the next big internal motivator, which is mastery, the skills that you need to pursue your purpose. And those are the big five intrinsic motivators. What I like to tell people is that peak performers, in the same way that athletes will stack fuel sources, they'll always make sure they have fats and proteins and carbs and they're hydrated. Peak performers stack intrinsic motivators. They want all of their motivators pointed in the same direction because you get the most juice for free, least amount of effort, most energy, highest performance. Once you have all your intrinsic motivators, what do you need next? Goals. You need to tell the system we are goal-directed systems, literally, right? So human beings, this is often not pointed out, but you talked about earlier about, you know, chinks in the cognitive armor. Most people don't realize we don't live in reality. We live in a reality that is shaped primarily by two things, our fears or our goals, most of everything that's getting in, and if you don't have proper goals set, you're going to get way more fear, way more anxiety. And what the research shows, and we were right on and bold in a yes and way, you've got to start with a massively transformative purpose. You have to start with a mission statement for your life, right? This is, I want to write books that change the world kind of, kind of statement, right? 
Yeah. Underneath that, you need your high heart goals. These are the one to five year sub steps that help you accomplish your missions. So if I, I want to write books that impact the world, then I want to go to journalism school and I want to get a job at a magazine and learn how to write. And I want to write a book on cooking and politics. Take your pick, right? Those are high heart goals. And then at the bottom level, you need what are called clear goals. These are daily to-do lists. There are specific ways to set them, like there are specific ways to set higher goals, massively transforming purposes. But just to give you an idea of how powerful probable goal setting is, high hard goals. This is classic goal setting theory. Uh, two of the guys I interviewed for the book, John Locke and Gary Latham, founders of goal setting theory. They've been doing this work forever. They found out, and this has been since validated, that simply setting high hard goals, proper higher core goals, you get an 11 to 25% boost in motivation. So if like an eight-hour day is your baseline, that's two free hours of work simply for setting a proper goal around what you're doing all day. That's amazing. That's yeah. so much energy for free. Hey there, just going to interrupt. If you are a leader, a knowledge worker, or an entrepreneur, and you want to take your professional success to the next level while reclaiming time, space, and freedom within your personal life, then Zero to Dangerous may be a fit for you. Zero to Dangerous is our flagship peak performance training. You'll work one-on-one with our coaches. You'll go through our whole curriculum. You'll join a community of peak performers from all over the world. We're about seven or 800 strong at this point. It's an amazing group. So if that's of interest to you, go to getmoreflow.com, getmoreflow.com, pop an application through, takes 30 seconds. We would be excited to speak with you to see whether it's a good fit. So that's getmoreflow.com. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? Because without a target, you'll miss it every time is the phrase I use. And you are making throughout the day, you're making all these little, small, little decisions on what you eat, what you drink, who you talk to, what email you return and whatever. And if you've got an overall arching goal of the day, uh, those small decisions can be made a little bit in that direction that reinforce it. I think you're totally correct. And I, the thing I always point out to people that most people don't realize when I say our goals and our fears shape our reality. Yeah. So the... Senses gather about 11 million bits of information every second. Our, we have internal sources of information, so there, our own thoughts get added into that, so it's actually higher the inputs we're getting in per second. Consciousness, what you're aware of, it's 2,000 outputs at best, and some people have it down to about 160. And, to 100, like 100, and you, just to put this in context, 60 bits of information is you and I talking is about one person talking. If we're both talking at once, that's 120 bits. <laughs> if three people are talking at once, which is where most people max out, that's 180 bits. That's most of all you can pay attention to at any one time. So when I say most of reality gets missed, all of it's gone, right? What gets through your fears and your goals? We've all had the experience of you're driving down a street, you've driven down a million times, and you never knew there was a restaurant on that street. One day you drive down and you're hungry. So then you're like, holy crap, there are restaurants everywhere I never noticed. It's because your goals are shaping your perceptions at all, right? They're letting this stuff in. And if we don't have the proper goals, it's opportunity cost. That's the big deal, right? Because what you're missing is all the little details that are coming in that might help you achieve your goal. Yeah, there's a great phrase Dan Sullivan uses. He goes, your eyes only see and your ears only hear what you're looking for. He's very right about that. We're scared of, right? Yeah. Yeah, what you're looking for, what you're scared of. Yeah, your good old amygdala coming into play. We 
we speak about the amygdala often. A lot, yeah. God bless it. So there's a formula for... Yeah, that it goes... I mean, you'll go from goals into grit. There's And there's six levels of grit that peak performers tend to train. Six levels of grit. Yeah, it's interesting. Grit is often just talked about at the intersection of passion and perseverance. And um, that's not even a totally correct because passion is is like... That's is a motivator. Perseverance is what you need when the motivator runs out. But if you look under the hood and talk to peak performers, you'll find they train six different levels of grit, starting with physical grit, cognitive grit, the grit to control your thoughts. You were talking about negative self-rumination earlier. That's a grit skill, right? You have to train yourself not to do that a little bit. Then, you know, then it moves from there. There's the grit to be your best when you're at your worst is a different kind of grit skill. And it, and when I say a different kind of grit skill is you have to train it a little differently, right? So I always say, you're going to laugh at me because I, I know how you practice your speeches. But when I'm writing a new speech, because I don't love that experience, I will, like, I'll write the speech and then I'll give it a couple of times. And then I'll wait for a day where like, I didn't get a lot of sleep the night before. I'll work all day. I'll go to the gym and I'll work out. I'll come home and I'll take my dogs and hike up a mountain and give the speech that the end of it. And I know if I can like be exhausted and hike up a mountain and give a speech, I got it. And I can do it under any circumstance. Out of curiosity, how do you think I train for my speeches? Well, I've seen, I've been with you for speech training. First you write it, then you sort of give it piecemeal to whoever happens to be on the, on the phone with you. And then you have these little flashcards that you walk around with memorizing bits and pieces of it. Uh, I think that was only on my TED stage first speech. Oh, was like, it? Was like, it the TED stage? Do you know how or, get, by the way, you probably make it up on the spot and don't write them at all. I completely make it up on the spot. Yeah. I mean, my greatest experience of flow is going into an audience where I have to give a talk on longevity or exponentials or you know moonshots, whatever it is, and I will set one objective goal at the end, which is I want the audience to feel this at the end of my talk. And I will go in and I first felt flow when I did that because it was one of the best speeches I ever gave. And I had no idea what I was gonna say as I walked onto the stage other than this is the end goal I want. That was amazing for me. There's a handful of people I know who do that. I don't because yeah, I sort of figure if you're paying me the amount of money I get paid for speeches, I should practice. Well, well, yeah, I know that, but I mean, that's when I'm. I have a. But I also, yeah, I, I, but, you. I also know that I. I know how well you know your material. Like yeah. I get why you do that, and a lot of people who have been doing a lot of speeches seem to do that and find a lot of flow that way. It, for me, it's I just I'm too nervous, okay. right? My anxiety levels are too high. I really like to know what I I, I say a lot, but I'm also you're an extrovert. I'm an introvert. Yeah. It's okay. So when someone picks up this book, and ultimately I want to encourage everybody, like I have, I bought it, I just haven't read it yet. How difficult to read is it? And oh my God, it's so much fun. This book is, I really wanted to and write. And by the way, just so everybody knows that, you know, the, the website is The Art of Impossible. Not of the impossible, theartofimpossible.com is the website uh, for you to go in and grab the book. But now the book is a lot of fun. I wanted to write a like you know I've written more technical books on flow. I've written you know harder books on technology and things like that. This one is as readable and as useful as I possibly could make it. You know, Peter, you'll appreciate why I wrote this one, and you'll totally get it. You know, I, I've written 
so many books about people who have done extraordinary things. But for every one of the books that I've written and you've, we've written together, you know, there's a hundred people who make those books and there's 9,000 who got really damn close to like achieving some amazing goal. Like that the world, like we're, we write about people who are going after big problems in the world that really need solutions. And because of being around you, being around experts, being around SU, being in this world for a very long time, I saw so many amazing people who could do so many amazing good things for the world trip over themselves. Not, it wasn't like the business challenges didn't screw them up. It wasn't, it was their own, you know, it was what was between their ears and they kept tripping over their own feet. And I just was like, you know what? The world actually needs these people. I don't know how to solve water challenges in Africa. I know how to fix what's going on in people's brain for peak performance. So that's really why I wrote this book. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because people don't realize that if you wanted to increase the impact that you have or your company has or your community has or your country has, the first and foremost place to go is increasing a person's cognitive output. It's increasing their intelligence, right? If you can increase the intelligence or I would say maintain the intelligence, but increase the efficiency by which your intelligence is able to take action, that's a big deal. That there's nothing it's, more valuable. The other thing that's amazing is if you go to the end of the book, like we were talking about stuff formula, and we've been talking about the passion recipe and a bunch of stuff, there are onboarding practices, right? There's a bunch of stuff you have to do to get into the game. But in the end, there's about six things you need to do every day, many of which are like micro, tiny five-minute tasks, or some of them fit inside other things you're doing, and about seven things to do every week. And I'm guessing that most people listening are doing a handful of them, probably not in exactly the right order in the right way exactly, but it turns out it's not even that much like to massively level up your game. It's not that you're not adding that much into your life. Even amazing. This is more like, this is like Tim versus four hour work week in terms of these small efficiencies you could make that will change a significant impact on your life. Let me give you an example. I talk about something called the habit of ferocity. You and I have talked about this a little bit, right? So if, what do you get? If you can sort of like line up your intrinsic motivation get the proper three levels of goal setting set up and then sort of t- start training up the grit skills. You get what I call the habit of ferocity. Habit of ferocity is nothing more or less than the ability to just sort of automatically lean in instinctively to any challenge. And the way I explain it is like when most people encounter a problem, business problem, work problem, whatever, they freak a little bit, right? It's like five minutes of, oh, God damn it. I, you know, that kind of stuff mental agitation. And then it's a work problem. You got to solve it anyways. And then they end up solving it, right? People who have sort of got all this stuff pointed in the right direction will automatically, the problems stop up and they're going to be like, okay, I got to do this. And they're in, there's no dithering and say on average, we were looking at, we we're trying to figure it out. We think most people solve, and I seem to solve about five decent sized problems a day in a typical work day, five things are going to come your way that are, you know, have, have, have a little bit of a smack to them. And what's the big deal? You say five minutes a challenge. You've got five problems a day. It's 25 minutes a day, but it's three and a half hours a week. It's three and a half weeks a year. So like oftentimes people like see peak performance and they're like, how the hell they get so far ahead of me? Well, five minutes at a time is the real answer, right? Like that's how they got so far ahead of you. There's no big massive shortcut or trick. It's compound interest. You know, it's interesting. I have a mental trick that I use. A lot of times I'll get smacked by a problem and it's like, uh, 
you know, it's like there's this immediate reaction of, I don't want to deal with this, or this is scary for me, or I'm worried about this. And the, the mental flip that I do in that regard is to say, oh, good, this means I'm alive. You know, it's like, how boring would life be if it didn't have any challenges or any of this stuff? And if you can flip the mental state to say, okay, you know, finally a problem worthy of me. Well, here's the cool thing about that. So people, a lot of people don't realize this, but anxiety and curiosity are literally the exact same neurochemicals in the exact same parts of the brain, basically. So most mammals can't feel it's an either or. They get either anxiety or curiosity. So if, when they want to do things like um, when they're vaccinating cows, for example, and they've got cows in a line moving them into a you know a medical facility, cows they'll often put something out that cows will find curious because it they can't feel fear if there's curiosity. And <laughs> right, literally, humans can sort of feel both at once. But it's why cognitive reframing is such a powerful tool because it is so easy to turn anxiety into curiosity. It can be done with that. And all you need is sort of like, you've got a phrase that does it, right? You're feeling fear and suddenly you're flipping into, oh, there's a challenge I'm going to rise to. How am I going to do that? Right? So what do you think the biggest mistake that people make is? I think there's a couple of them. One of them, this is not mine. This isn't even in the book. And I wish I said, I didn't even say it, but uh, we do a lot of work with Stanford neuroscientist, Andrew Huberman. And he said something that I think is one thing here. He said, one of the biggest differences between peak performers and everybody else is that peak performers know whatever the situation is, it's always going to be crawl, walk, run. And most everybody else, they get into a situation like, yeah, dude, I don't, I don't really crawl and I don't want to walk. I want to, I'm going to find a, a shortcut so I can start by jogging. Right. And he's, and peak performers they don't look for those shortcuts because they, they've not done enough stuff that they know there are no shortcuts and that you're going to start out, right? Learning is the same for everybody. I don't care how good you are when you're learning something new. It's I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck. Oh, well, look, I don't suck anymore, right? Like, because it's an internal process, right? It's an, you're training the unconscious to be able to do something. And it, that doesn't, we're not privy to that. It happens out of sight. Our experience of it, is unpleasant no matter what and it's unpleasant for the best in the best it's unpleasant for everybody else and i and so that was one of the mistakes that i think is is very common i think it's made worse by today's always on on demand world right we want it now and we can have it right so we want these these skills super 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 fast and instead of just understanding that it's just a little bit it's a little bit it's a little bit you just do the work do the work and don't care the impatience crushes people yeah. So uh, speaking of impatience, Talia, are you asking our questions or is it Nia? Nia, I'm here today. Okay, Nia, plug in. First question from Nancy. What are the three foundational habits entrepreneurs must put into place in their work and or personal lives for peak performance? So this kind of question usually causes me to swear at people. I'm refraining from swearing at people. And the reason it causes me to swear at people is it's a mindset issue. If you're hunting around for what are the three things I can do Monday morning that will improve my performance, or what are the three habits of successful entrepreneurs, you're missing the point. You're looking for a shortcut. It is crawl, walk, run. There are six things that peak performers are sort of doing every day. There are seven things they're doing every week, meaning there's, there's more going on and it, you don't want to be thinking about it that way is the place I would always 
start with that. And it's really individual, meaning if you haven't figured out how to cultivate curiosity and turn it into passion and turn that into purpose, you want to start with your internal motivators for sure, because that's what gets you into the game. The next thing I would layer in, and this is really odd and it's often surprising to people, but I always, we, we do this with our clients very often at the Flow Research Collective. Most people have what's known as a primary flow activity. This is whatever that thing is you've done throughout the course of your life that immediately just sort of drops you into flow. You know, sometimes it it's, could be activities like skiing or skateboarding or surfing or building model airplanes or gardening or riding horses or walking your dog or what, you know, take your pick. There was something you used to do a lot of in your life that automatically sort of dropped you into the zone. And as we become adults, and especially in the craze that is entrepreneurship, where there's so much work to be done, what often gets kicked to the side is our primary flow activity. And what we always want people to start doing is to double down and bring it back. And the reason is fourfold. When it comes to flow, flow itself is the state of optimal performance, right? It's where we feel our best and we perform our best. The amplification is significant. Motivation, productivity, creativity, learning, collaboration, cooperation, all these things go up through the roof. Couple things to know. One, as we move into flow, there's a global release of nitric oxide. It's a gaseous signaling molecule. It's everywhere in the body and it resets the nervous system and flushes stress hormones out of your system and replaces them with kind of immunological boosting, feel good neurochemicals. So one, regular access to flow calms you down. Anxiety is such a block to peak performance. It's really great. Two, flow is essentially a focusing skill. So by going skiing on Monday and kind of dropping easily into flow, when you show up at work on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, you're going to have an easier time dropping into flow. Finally, and this is not my work, this is Teresa Mobley's work at Harvard, but flow's impact on creative problem solving is uh, somewhere between 400 and 700% in terms of how much it will boost our creativity. And this is there's lots of different studies that point in this direction, so that's a lot of different people's numbers. But Teresa discovered that that heightened creativity will outlast the flow state by a day, possibly two. So by doubling down on your primary flow activity, you're training the brain to focus its way into flow, right? The more flow you get, the more flow you get. You're resetting your nervous system. You're massively ampling up creativity. And because flow has such a big impact on kind of well-being and life satisfaction and things like optimism and confidence and uh, growth mindset and whatnot have a big impact on performance as well, doubling down on your primary flow activity is a great thing to be doing. And it's really counterintuitive. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, a lot of people, it's not a work thing. It's very hard for people, especially entrepreneurs, you know, to stop being entrepreneurs and actually continue to do those things. And it's really, really foundationally important. There is no three things I can give you. And I'm going to go on to the next question. But I will tell you that the doubling down your primary flow activity is a very, very big lever that everybody can reach for. Great. Nia? What role does spirituality play in reaching peak performance? I don't know. It's not the work I do. I work on the neurobiology of flow, and everything I work on is about getting your biology to work for you rather than against you. 
spirituality is a term that means a lot of different things to a, a lot of different people. And I'm not going to sort of wade into those waters because it's not, it's not really the work I do in the world. It's not my expertise. And I try to stay in my lane. Next question. Next question. Is this book helpful for kids between the ages of 12 and 18? That's interesting. 12, maybe. Um, and for sure, this stuff is applicable. And, I, you know, we have definitely um, kids themselves are flow prone. So training kids in flow with some of these skills early on is great. Certainly everything in the book is, there's nothing, you know, in the book that kids can't be doing. I know a lot of teenagers who've been using a lot of these principles to do things like, you know, get through high school, get into the college they want to, study for the SATs, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, we, a lot of people have had a lot of success with this. And when I say a lot of people, I, for those of you who don't know what we do with the Flow Research Collective, we're a research and training organization. And on the research side, we're partnered with USC, UCLA, Stanford, Imperial College, London, a bunch of different people. We study the neurobiology, peak human performance. And on the training side, we uh, use what we learn to train. We train about a thousand people a month and we train everybody from like the US Special Forces through Fortune 100 CEOs through the general public. And what that means is we have a bunch of neuroscience on the front end and our stuff is battle tested on the back end. I think at this point, we're the largest neuroscience-based peak performance training company in the world. So lots and lots and lots of data about what's working for everyone. And the stuff we focus on is stuff, you know, biology scales is the way I always explain it, right? The reason we work on neurobiology is because it works for everybody. So um, that would also include kids aged 12 to 18. A lot of people are curious, uh, is this book available on Audible? Yes, Audible, ebook, Kindle. Did you read uh, it for Audible? I did not read it to Audible. Uh-huh. I, I know, I know, I know, I know. Don't, I, I just didn't have the time and I knew you were going to yell at me. Um, <laughs> uh, when, when Steve and I have written our books, we uh, will meet at like 6 a.m. in the morning. Uh, we have a routine and we would sort of read like what we wrote the day before and edited. And I just love, I call it, you know, like mornings with Steven and and Steve would read to me as I, as I drink my coffee of what we read yesterday. So anyway, it was fun. It's 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 a fun, it's a fun fun. It will be fun. I think next next year it'll be fun, by the way. I think, I think we're back in pretty soon. Yes. We're, we're, Steve and I are working on uh, the next version of abundance Uh, on the 10 year anniversary. The story has gotten so much stronger, so much better. What do you think about the blue ocean strategy? Um, so again, a little bit outside of my uh, area of expertise and where I'm qualified to comment is on the cognitive side of that, right? There's a lot of nutritional things going on, blue ocean zones and things like that. But certainly some of the social support stuff is very foundational to peak performance. So that's some of the stuff that is really strong out of there. And cognitively, not, there's not a whole lot going on. You know, as I said, bi- your biology is a limited set of tools. So what they're looking at aligns with it. I, there's some really peak performance as we get older is really interesting. There are, there, this is not the topic of art and possible, but some of the blue ocean stuff that's spinning out about like aging well, and there's some cognitive, I'll give you a random example that's really weird that's spinning out of that research is we now know in adults that if you haven't sort of figured out how to get paid doing what you love or for something that you're actually curious, if you're not, if your thing that you're doing for a living, it doesn't align with curiosity, passion, and purpose by around the time you're 40, you start having a lot of issues 
after that. Cognitive issues, cognitive performance issues. By 50, this is the weirder one. You have to have forgiven everybody who's done you wrong in your life or it starts to like really limit like well-being and creative problem-solving things like that as you get older. And that's some of the work. We're not doing that work. That's not exactly in The Art of Impossible, but it's super neat. And I've been paying a lot of attention to it because I think I'm interested in it. Yeah. Question. What's your take on hypnosis and peak performance? Interesting question. Not work that I have been directly involved in, though there's been a lot of really interesting work lately on hypnosis and flow. Certainly, and depending on, you know, there's a the line between self-hypnosis and positive self-talk is getting very blurry. So, um, but positive self-talk has been shown to have kind of uh, really good results. And there's really, there's interesting work on self-hypnosis and hypnosis and flow. It's not work that we're directly involved in, but there's neat stuff going on. And there's a whole group of people who are really poking at it hard. Next, do you have any advice for staying in flow while working from home and Zoom fatigue? Yeah. Okay. So great question there. Zoom fatigue. I don't know if I have any actual answers there, but I do have a lot of stuff on working from home. One thing, so I talked about a clear goals list earlier on, like which is your daily to-do list. And the research sort of shows there's a specific way to think about a clear goals list for your day. You want to start your day with your most important task, your hardest goal, right? The thing that if you accomplish it's the biggest win for your day. And you want to sort of work backwards in intensity. I always tell people first, figure out how many things you can be excellent at in a day. And that's how many items go on a clear goals list. If you can't be excellent at it, you shouldn't be doing it right for peak performance. So, and this varies of course, but you, and you have to run the experiment over a couple of weeks. And if it's going to take energy, right? I'm not talking about just work tests. If you have to have a difficult conversation with your kids or your spouse, if you're going to go to the gym, anything that's going to actually take energy away has to go on that clear goals list. Start with your hardest goal, work towards your easiest one because willpower sort of declines over time. There are ways to reset and reboot it, but it does decline over the course of a day. And you really do sort of need a good night's sleep to reboot it um, or a big state change in experience. But here's the trick. Be sure to check everything off your clear goals list as you go along. One, one of the biggest problems from working from home, most people are used to organizing their life and their time through work activities where you know, you're going here, you're doing this, you're going here, you're doing this. Your brain is blending everything together, so there's no separation. That's one of the reasons it's so fatiguing. You don't have that feeling of accomplishment. Oh, I had that meeting. Now I'm going to this meeting. Now I'm going. So you have to artificially create it by checking things off your clear goals list as you go through your day. Every time you do, you're getting a little bit of dopamine, right? Little reward chemical dopamine. More importantly, with the clear goals list, you will know when you're done with your day, how yeah, I finished everything on my list. My day is done. I won my day. I can go relax and turn it off because recovery is important. So we have been training people in when we were working from home, three things that we're, we're really focusing on people. One, double down your primary flow activity because this is also really gone by the wayside for a lot of people during COVID. And most of us have become very hypervigilant right? So there's way too much anxiety in our, in our systems right now. So you want to sort of lower that down. Clear goals are really, really, really one of sort of the great tools 
for working from home. I can, I can sort of go on from there, but I'll, I'll stop and let me ask another question. Let me ask you, Stephen, along those lines. You know, I definitely, when I wake up, I will try and get a meditation and a quick workout and then look at the calendar for the day and figure out what my most important actions are. And I agree with you, the idea of creating a, like a list of like, if I just do these things today, that today will be amazing, right? And then crossing those off, I love that dopamine hit. But the other thing I do when I'm, if I'm passed out is I'll reflect on the day and think about the wins from the day and sort of like the gratitude practice at the end of the day. So this is where I was going to go next. And this sort of ties into the blue ocean thing. And, it, and this actually even like, you asked that question at the very beginning, if there were three things you could do every day, that kind of question. This is the reason why there are not three things to do. There are what positive psychology, 30 years of positive psychology has been looking at this question tells us is there are six things that are essentially the positive psychology basics. There are three that are on the physical side of the equation. I have the energy to meet the tasks of the day and perform at my best. And then there are cognitive three on the cognitive side that are basically about keeping anxiety in check so you can perform at your best. On the physical side, it's obvious. Sleep, and we need seven to eight hours of sleep a night. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room there. Um, yep. we need I mean, by the way, those of you who think get away with five and a half or six, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're yep. wrong. By the way, if, if you think you can get away with five and a half or six, here's the simple experiment to do because you can find these on, online. There's a bunch of cognitive tests. Find a, like a 10-minute cognitive performance test online. Take it after five hours of sleep. Take it after eight hours of sleep. Just take a look at how stupid you are after five hours of sleep. You'll never do it again. Like you, it will cure you of, you know, of the fact that you think you can get away with it really fast. It's shocking how much cognition. And, and, the, and the great book, we'll, we'll have uh, this year at Abundance 360, uh, we've got Dr. Matt Walker, who wrote a book called Why We Sleep. And in our conversation at A360, uh, he will cure you of your uh, misperceptions on yeah, sleep. Exactly. If, if, if so, evolution could have gotten rid of just an hour of sleep, the segment of humanity that could do, get away on seven hours versus eight hours would so outperform the rest of humanity, we'd all evolve to seven hours, then six hours and five hours. Anyway. So there's sleep, seven, eight hours, non-negotiable, hydration and nutrition. And I have no, I mean, hydration, drink lots of water, right? <laughs> and nutrition, there's no, as far as I can tell, as far as anybody can tell, there's no one diet that works for everybody, right? So solve your nutrition problems your way, but you need good quality hydration and nutrition. Here's the other thing. This is a blue zone thing. On the energy side, on the physical side is social support. And social support meanings, you know, high quality interactions with people you love and who love you. And the reason this is on the energy side, the first there's the obvious. If you think about, if you get in a fight with your spouse or your brother or your sister or your boss or your friend, think about how your energy is affected the next day at work. That's the obvious one. The less obvious one, what most people don't realize is every time you go to solve a challenge in your life, any problem you encounter, your brain in a, in a microsecond does a risk assessment. And it wants to know, is this thing a threat or is it an opportunity, right? And one of the parts of that risk assessment is a big part of the risk assessment is, do you've got posse? Do people like you and love you and support you? Because if it's a problem that you got to solve alone, now you got a big ass problem. But if you've got posse, okay, you can be a little calmer. Your brain is doing that all the time, right? Every problem you encounter. So to maintain the physical energy you need for peak performance, you need those three things 
sort of on a daily basis, right? So I try to have, you know, personally, I like to have one great conversation with my wife and one great conversation with a friend every day. That's what sort of keeps me. These can be five minutes long. They can be an hour long or whatever, but like I connect with somebody. There's some eye contact. I love you. You love me. I got your back. You've got my back. Cool. I love you, Stephen. I love you, Peter. All right, um, brother. I, right. I, by the way, it's true. I do love you. You're, you're amazing. And I, and I'm grateful for you in my, in my life. Uh, by the way, I just, want to, I just want to be able to queue up if we have any oh, yeah. social media questions as well. But you were going to say, Stephen, sorry. Yeah, let me go to the cognitive side because this is, gets to the side of you, what you talked about. Oh, and by the way, one thing about the energy side, under normal conditions, you can usually screw one of those up a day and still kind of perform at your best. You know what I mean? Like you didn't get enough sleep, but you're good hydration, nutrition, good social support. You might be able to get into flow, perform at your best. But under crisis situations or when there's more stress in your life, all three every all the time. You can't skimp on them. On the cognitive side, something similar. The three best ways to stay relaxed, and you nailed it, is daily gratitude practice, five minutes long or whatever, a respiration, mindfulness, breath work practice. And the research is really clear. 11 to 20 minutes a day is all you need to sort of regulate your nervous system or 20 to 40 minutes of exercise, right? You will basically, if you're exercising for anxiety, you want to work out till it's quiet upstairs, Right. That's all that matters is it just you just get that quiet is actually a release of nitric oxide. Same thing that shows up with the front end of flow state, flushing stress hormones out of your system. Hmm. And so under normal conditions, you know, non-crisis situations, one a day, meaning gratitude, mindfulness or exercise is enough. But in times of peak stress, two or three is what you want to reach for. Considering, Peter, that you're doing three a day, how you live your life. I, that's perfect. Right. I know. I, 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 I think you should be doing three days. But yeah, so that's what I mean. Like, it's there's no three things you can do because, it, you know, it depends on the day, it depends on who you are, how much stress is in your life, you know, that kind of thing. But like, these things are important. I like doing my gratitude. Sometimes the way I do it is when my life is going really well, I like doing my gratitude work at the end of the day. And when I'm more stressed out, I do it's the first. I actually like a cup these days because um, there's been so much work. I'm coming into my office soon, first thing in the morning as the coffee's brewing. I'm doing my gratitude practice before I even start writing. Yeah, right. It sets the day off beautifully. And by the way, it's interesting, right? The stuff that I'm typically grateful for, either at the beginning or the end of the day, is very different than my business stuff. I agree with that too. I don't know if I've talked to you about this. So we do a lot of work with Dr. Glenn Fox. He's at USC. He's the world's leading expert on the neuroscience of gratitude. And we've been doing a series of great studies with Glenn, but we discovered that people with regular gratitude practices have much higher flow experiences than other people. So gratitude practice, probably because it lowers anxiety and that's really important for producing flow, but tends to correlate with a regular gratitude practice, tends to correlate with a high flow lifestyle. We had all kinds of other studies planned off of this one, and then COVID happened. And so we've got an entire like suite of science that we're waiting to do to take into the field and, and run more experiments on. But there's already a, a really strong link between gratitude and flow. All right. I'm going to jump in here. Do you have any other book recommendations, perhaps to prepare or supplement reading your book? I wish I, I can't, I, again, it depends on where you want to go and, and, and what you want, you know, do you want to go harder or less hard? I mean, I would honestly, in my mind, I sort of have been pairing Art of Impossible with Peter Mai's last book, Futures Faster Than You Think, because I think, 
you know, one is giving you a look at the technology that you can use to level up your game and take on grand challenges. And the other is the cognitive skill set. So if you haven't read Peter and mine's last book faster, I would take a look at it. There's a bunch of books that are sort of referenced. I like David Epstein's range is not a book. Most people have read uh, on peak performance, but it's phenomenal. His work, Dave is a friend of mine. I draw on his work a little bit in uh, the art impossible. I love range. Trying to think what I've seen recently that, like, you know, is a really great companion book, The Art of Impossible, but faster yeah, well, range. We'll think about it. Nia, your last question for uh, our esteemed guest. Great. I watch YouTube at 1.75 speed. Can we train our brain to digest content two to three times faster? Yeah, this is an interesting question. Uh, there's a learning section in the book, and in the learning section, I sort of break down how our learning so how the brain's learning software works and question of you know where do we get content and how do we get content and things like that and if you're an audio based learner maybe audiobooks kind of thing are awesome i'm cautious about all the speed learning techniques speed reading does not give you better retention in fact speed reading is just about a lie and i don't believe <laughs> and i don't believe that list and here's the reason Here's the thing that you guys are all missing, trying to blaze through. Oh my God, I can listen to things 17 times faster. What, sure, maybe, but all you're doing when you're doing that is you're getting just the general ideas that basically everybody else is getting. You're not, you're missing the detail. You're missing the nuance. You're missing the subtlety. And what you're missing is the novelty and the patterns and the little, you're just going to learn what everybody else is sort of learning. That's not going, you're going to end up thinking in the exact same direction as everybody else. It doesn't lead to the kind of novelty and creativity and entrepreneurship that you're probably looking for from blazing through at 1.7 speed. If you actually want to give your brain the information to chew on and to utilize in new ways, you're not getting enough detail. The brain loves detail. So when I talk about a clear goals list, even earlier, we were talking about goal setting, emphasis on clear, not on goals. The brain loves the details. We have built-in pattern recognition systems. We're built to connect ideas to ideas. And if you're just going through at 1.7 speed and getting the big, broad, general idea, there's not enough detail there for the brain to work with to do the stuff you probably want it to do. Can you train your brain to absorb information at those faster speeds? I don't know. It's sort of like, you know, there's a bunch of research on multitasking. Can you learn to be better at multitasking? Yeah, you can a little bit over time. But the truth of the matter is our brains aren't built for multitasking. We're serial processing engines. And no matter how good you try to train yourself to be multitasking or listening to information at 1.7 speed, you're still performing worse than if you were just trying to do things one at a time and slow it down. There's a rule in peak performance that I think is, is worth pointing out, which is Sometimes you got to go slow to go fast. Mm. Uh, nobody is in more of a hurry than me or Peter. Like you haven't met two people in more of a hurry than us. That much I guarantee you. And <laughs> we've learned these lessons the hard way. Stephen Kotler, thank you, buddy. So listen, if uh, if you haven't yet, please go to www.theartofimpossible.com, theartofimpossible.com, and check out the book there. It's also on Audible or go to www.passionrecipe.com, which I already have open on my screen because I want to check that out. And now that the Audible is out, I can actually read that. 
I'll probably do 1.1 speed, and I hope uh, I like the voice of the person that you chose, dude, because I'll be pissed. Um, I know. If I know uh, if you if you don't like it, I'm gonna hear about it. I know. <laughs> I know. Thank you, Stephen. Much love, Peter. Thank you. Love you. Bye, too. everybody. Bye. If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.